people we want to talk about tonight. You might be pastor. I get the why question all the time. Um, why did God allow that? Why did God allow this? Why doesn't God do something about that? Why doesn't He do something about this? Why doesn't God stop this horrible thing? Why doesn't God intervene? There are 10,000 variations to the why question. And it's been my experience over my 30 years of lay vocational ministry that oftentimes these questions are veiled accusations against God. They're not really honest inquiries. They're accusations. The accusation is, if I were God, I could run this universe a whole lot better. Why would God let this happen? Why? 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 I hear it all the time. I don't blame honest questioners as much as I do the leaders of pseudo-churches around the world who propagate a caricature of the biblical God. I hold them mostly responsible. Men who stand in pulpits, men who have places of authority, and they propagate a false gospel as Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 1. God says, let such men be accursed. Any man who would preach about me falsely, let that man be accursed. Any man who would mess up the gospel and try to add something to the gospel, let that man be accursed. You guys know we're saved by what? By what? By grace. Grace alone. Through Christ alone. By faith alone. Amen? And we know that down through the ages, men have tried to pile religion on top of this. This is a stench, as I said earlier in the nostrils of God. So men who preach and teach a one-dimensional, superficial, sentimental, effeminate gospel. You know, they preach God in such a way that by the time you get, by the time they get through preaching, you feel sorry for Him. He must be a needy and pathetic God who just wants somebody to love Him. Maybe some of you have heard this kind of preaching, so-called preaching. You know, it's, it's the kind of preaching and teaching where you, you walk away from uh, the message and, and you're pretty convinced the whole universe revolves around you, that God and everything in it is for your benefit. Right? God is here to serve you. God is here to meet your needs. God is here to make you happy. The gospel is preached like this all over the world. And I, I know this because not only do I hear it, but I have people coming through this church all the time who are awash in this kind of theology. These, kind, these kinds of men are preaching a caricature of the biblical God. It's a distorted cartoon of who God really is. Many in Christian cultures have a false view of the biblical God. That God will love to the exclusion of His holiness and His righteousness. 
You know, there are some so-called churches you go into, you'll never hear about the wrath of God. You'll never hear about the judgment of God. You'll never hear about an everlasting hell. You'll never hear about it. It's been edited. It's been edited out as unacceptable. You just don't hear it. The kind of gospel where uh, God will show mercy to the exclusion, again, of His judgment. A God that can be more or less played for a fool. Well, I can hold off on true repentance and faith because I'll pray the magic prayer when I need it. And if I just pray the magic prayer, then God will be obligated to save me, right? I just need the magic prayer. I've got it in my hip pocket. If I really get in a jam, I'll pray my magic prayer. But hey, I'm just going to enjoy myself in the interim, right? I'm going to stiff-arm God. I'm going to ignore God. I'm going to be indifferent to God. I don't really care what God says. Yeah, I call myself a Christian. And I go to church when it's convenient. Probably many of you have heard these kinds of messages. The Holy Spirit indicts this kind of thinking in Romans chapter 3. He says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Any gospel presentation that leaves out the righteous, holy judgment of God is a false gospel presentation. It is a false gospel. God says, Let such men be accursed who would edit my gospel. This is what the Lord says again, twice in Galatians chapter 1. If we read our Bibles with only average comprehension skill, we understand that Jehovah God is no pathetic, needy, frantic God. He's not just trying and hoping that someone will love Him. That's not the biblical God. If we read our Bible, Bibles with only uh, average comprehension skill, we understand that El Shaddai is not one-dimensional. He's not sentimental. He's not effeminate. If we read our Bibles with only average comprehension skills, we know that He is an awesome, fearsome, unapproachably holy, consuming fire God. That's who I am is. Last week we talked at length about who that was on that donkey 2,000 years ago. It's that God. It's I am God on that donkey. And we talked about the emotional complexity of God, a God of fierce wrath, as the Bible says. Right? But a God of unfathomable mercy and grace. Listen, beloved, if you have some small view of God, I challenge you here today don't dishonor Him with some caricature of Him in your heart and your mind. Know that he's, He is fully God. A God of fierce wrath and a God of infinite mercy. This is God. All that God does, God does. All that God is, God does. I know it's hard for us with our finite minds to understand. You guys know Hebrews 10, 31. 
It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I wanted to ask you, have you ever been truly terrified? Probably most of us in this room have never ever been truly terrified. But if you go to Isaiah chapter 2 verse 19, this is what you read. And the men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and before the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the whole earth tremble. We talked about this some last week as we talked about this awesome God on this donkey. This is not some effeminate pitiful, needy God. This is I am God, the God of Mount Sinai, the God who crushed Egypt, the God who sent the flood and killed everybody but Noah and his family and the creatures. This God who, who foretells the, the end times when He will come in fierce wrath and destroy all of His enemies and cast them into the lake of fire. That's the God who's on the donkey. That's the God who sacrifices Himself for you. I know it's sometimes hard to hold these two thoughts in tension, but that's who He is. He has every right to judge you. He has every right to judge me. But He's on a donkey. He's coming into Jerusalem to save a people for His great name. We just sang it. He says, I will save a people for my great name. Yes, we talked about it last week. God is love. But there are many other attributes of God. I was, the only reason I go on Facebook, I've got a lot of preachers that are friends of mine, and they're always posting really cool stuff. <laughs> so I, I like to go out there. My, my spiritual mentor uh, posted something just yesterday obviously talking about the fact that perfect love comes to mankind. And what does mankind do with perfect love? What does mankind do? Mankind crucifies perfect love. He, he wrote on his post, he says, even perfect love is not tolerated by the unregenerate man. Very true. Amen? Very true. God is love, but God is unapologetically clear he is angry with sin. He is indignant. He is full of fury and He is full of wrath. Again, I know in many so-called churches you don't hear these things anymore, but if you actually read your Bible, you'll see these things mentioned 400 plus times in the Word of God. Let me just share some verses with you just to set the stage because I want you to remember who this God is as we look at the cross. I want you to remember who this God is. I want you to remember what you deserved. Then we'll look at what Christ did for us. Just some descriptive terms, a brief survey of, of Scripture. God talks about His burning anger, His indignation, His blazing wrath, His fierce anger, His great wrath, His wrathful hostility, the flood of His anger, being filled and full of wrath, His rod of wrath, the fire of His wrath, the pouring out uh, of His burning indignation, inflicting His wrath, accomplishing His anger against His 
enemies. God is unapologetic. Jeremiah 10.10 But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Nahum 1.6 Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning anger of God? His wrath is poured out like fire. Ezekiel 8.18 God says, Therefore I indeed shall deal in my wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor shall I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I shall not listen to them. Just some excerpts from Isaiah chapter 13. God says, I am coming with my instruments of indignation to execute my anger. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt, and they will be terrified. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning with anger. Nahum 1-2, God says, I am a jealous, avenging, and a wrathful God. Psalm 7-11, God says, I am angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 5-5, God says, I hate all. All who do iniquity. Do you understand where you are before God? Apart from what we look at today, apart from this, this awesome sacrifice, do you understand how much you must have Jesus Christ? Do you understand you have to have Jesus Christ? Or omnipotent wrath will land on you forever? Do you understand you must have Christ? You know, I often muse about the fact, why aren't there 10,000 people in here, crowding in here? Yes, it would be crowded. But why aren't there 10,000 people trying to get through this door to hear this? You know why. By and large, men have, you know, domesticated Christianity. So now it's just a little bit of religion. You know, I do a magic prayer. I do a magic ordinance. I come to church if it's convenient, if it doesn't, you know, mess up my schedule in any way. I serve the Lord if it's, you know... You know, if it's, yeah, I guess convenience is good a word as any. If it doesn't mess up my schedule, I'll, I'll serve the Lord. Biblical Christianity has been domesticated. We talk about this all the time. <laughs> salvation is discipleship. And discipleship is salvation. There's no dichotomy. You cannot say you are a Christian and not be a disciple of Jesus. That's that's an oxymoron, biblically speaking. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, you're not a Christian. You may be a church member, but you're not a Christian if you're not His disciple. Um, so this is something that we talk about often. Last week we saw in Revelation 19.15, we saw this Lamb of God coming back and He was treading the, the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. There's a great sermon online. You can go read it by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Probably some of you have read it. It's not that long, but he's famous for this sermon. He preached many other sermons. But in that sermon, he talks about the eternal, infinite, and omnipotent wrath of God. He says, now listen, I want you to think about this. After millions and millions and millions of ages of wrath, it will have only just begun. The reason I'm laying this groundwork, beloved, because I want you to understand who you are before God, apart from what we study today. If Jesus doesn't come for you, 
If Jesus doesn't shed his blood for you, if Jesus doesn't atone for your sin and my sin, omnipotent wrath would fall on us. I want us to have a full appreciation of what we're looking at as we go through some texts tonight. As I said earlier, many churches edit these truths out of their messages. Um, but Jesus didn't. There's more from the lips of Jesus about hell than any other source in the Bible. Jesus speaks of hell like this. He calls it eternal punishment, eternal fire, unquenchable fire, being salted with fire. He calls it the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says it's the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Beloved, I'll graciously answer your why question. I'll graciously answer your why question. But that's not the most important question. That's not the most important question for you and I. What must I do to be saved? That's the most important question in the cosmos. It's not why, it's what, right? As the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? That should be your first question. Always your first question. Why is always the wrong question? And we've talked about it many times in here. God does not answer why questions. He's never going to answer why to you. He doesn't give an account to anyone, even his own children. He does not give an accounting of himself to anybody. The Bible is not God's accounting. The Bible is not God's explanation. The Bible is God's revelation. You need a Savior? Here's one. That's the Bible. That's what the Bible's about. God's not trying to explain every you know, question that you have. That's not His purpose. That's not your most urgent need. <laughs> your most urgent need is what? Not why, but what? What must I do to be saved? You know, the why questions, as, as, as I feel them, and I, again, I, 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 I'll, I graciously try to feel them, but I've, I've noticed one tendency as I answer the why question. It's most often from someone who sees themselves as a victim. The why question comes from somebody who sees themselves as a victim. Well, somehow something's been uh, done to me that's wrong. It doesn't add up. It shouldn't have happened. It's wrong. I'm a victim here. But what does the Bible say? We talked about it last week at length. What does the Bible say about mankind? Are we victims? What do we talk about in Young Adult Bible Study Thursday evening? Are we victims or are we enemies? What does the Bible say? We're enemies of God. Romans chapter 5, I think. We're enemies of God. We made ourselves the enemies of God. Forget the why. Ask the what. What must I do to be saved? Stop asking all the whys. God will not explain Himself to you. He's never done it in the Bible, and He's not going to start with you. Do you remember the explanation God gave Job? Oh, He didn't give him one. 
He just blew Job away with his awesome presence and revelation. I love how John Piper talks about this, how we have offended God, how we are the enemies of God. He says, you know, if you offend a, a toad, you know what a toad is, a frog? If you offend a toad, it's not a big deal, right? If you offend a man, it might be a big deal. He might come after you. But we have offended God. It's an infinitely big deal. This is what most of mankind does not understand. They see God as a sentimental, maudlin, syrupy, effeminate, Santa Claus, grandfatherly kind of character who will just wink at the sin. If you read your Bible, <laughs> that's not who I am is. I hate counterfeit Gospels. I hate every one of them. They take millions to hell. These counterfeit Gospels, these pseudo-churches and these pseudo-ministers, these pseudo-popes and pseudo-bishops and pseudo-priests and pseudo-pastors of pro Protestant churches and, and pseudo-patriarchs, I hate every version of false gospel because it damns men. It, it diminishes God and it damns men. There are two tragedies in the world. God is profaned and men are perishing. Those are the two tragedies of this world. God is profaned and men are perishing. But you and I, we have the real gospel why is always the wrong question, beloved? What is the question? What must I do to be saved? And what is God's answer? What must I do to be saved? <laughs> it's the who, right? Your first question needs to be what. Your second question needs to be who. Forget why. Forget why. You may learn some answers to some why questions as you study the Scripture. But beloved, that's not the most important question for you and for me. As I thought about this, I couldn't help but think of Isaiah chapter 6. You remember when Isaiah found himself in front of a thrice holy God? What did he do? What did, what did Isaiah do? He said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I looked at a bunch of uh, translations there. These are some of the words that were used. He says, I am ruined. He says, I am lost. I am doomed. Uh, I, am, I am destroyed. I am exposed. I am cut off. Isaiah is not asking why. In Isaiah chapter 6, he's not asking why. That question couldn't be further from is mine. How could I ever be saved? How could I ever be reconciled? This is Isaiah's question. How could I ever be reconciled to this holy God? Right? Well, we have our answer, don't we? Jesus has come for us. Peter said at Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is 
is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We proclaim it gladly and proudly and happily in this place. There's not ten ways to God. There's not five ways to God. There's not three ways to God. There's not two ways to God. There's one way to God. His name is Jesus Christ. And beloved, you call yourself a Christian, you need to be able to stand out in the world and make this proclamation. Of course, the world hates it. Of course they hate it. Well, you're a bigot. You're intolerant. No. You're the children of God. You've been called to be a witness. Jesus said they hated me. Of course they're going to hate you. If you do your job. <laughs> Amen? It just goes with the territory. It just goes with the territory. You want to walk with Jesus? You want to call yourself a Christian? Speak the truth, beloved. In love, there's one way to God. His name is Jesus Christ. We talked about it last week. I started the sermon this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1. His name is Jesus. I am is in the womb of a teenage virgin. He's in a manger in Bethlehem. He's on the mountain Galilee. He's riding a donkey into Jerusalem, and he will be nailed to a tree. As we talked about last week, I think it was, blood must be shed. There is no remission of sin apart from the blood being shed. An innocent blood will be shed. The very blood of I am God in the person of Jesus Christ. So, let's spend a few minutes remembering and recounting what happened 2,000 years ago during that fateful week, that fateful weekend. We talked a lot about this last week. God has staged an intervention. He's riding into to Jerusalem. And He's come to save His people. You may remember when they came to arrest Jesus. It was a farce. This was no true arrest. Jesus was in control. How do we know Jesus was in control? Does anybody remember the, the account when they, come to, when they came to get Him? Three to six hundred guys came to get Him. And they said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. What happened? They all fell to the ground. This is a joke. And then they, they, they get up and they tie Him up. Right? It's a joke. He's in charge. He's in charge. This is no true arrest. He's sacrificing himself. That's what's happening in the garden. As you know, the religious leaders who arrested Jesus, they brought him to Pilate. And Pilate could find no fault in him. So to satisfy their bloodlust, he, he had Jesus scourged. So you know about a Roman scourging. Have you seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? You know about a Roman scourging. That's what a Roman scourging looks like. God would have been tied to a post. And you guys know the, the whip. It had metal shards or sharp stones interwoven into the, the, the braiding. And he would have been uh, lashed 39 times. Men died from, from scourging. Uh, from the top of his shoulders down to the, his, uh, his buttocks would be laid bare. There would be possibly ribs uh, visible, organs visible. It was a brutal, 
brutal torture. A brutal torture. Oh, you remember what God says in Isaiah 53, 5. The chastening for our well-being fell on Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. John 19, 2-3 tells us that after God was scourged, they put a crown of thorns on God's head and they put a purple robe on Him and they mocked God and they hit God in the face. Matthew 27, 30 tells us that they spat on, they spat on God and they beat God on the head. John 19, 5-6, Pilate says, Behold the man. And the chief priests and the crowd cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! John 19, 15, Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest says, We have no king but Caesar. Israel has utterly rejected their Messiah. Completely, totally, and utterly John 19, 17 tells us that Jesus carried His own cross. This is astonishing to me. After being scourged, there would have been four Roman soldiers around Him as He carried His cross through the city, and there had been a fifth Roman soldier out front with a placard naming the sin, uh, or not the sin, but the crime of Jesus. Who knows what the crime of Jesus was? He claimed to be the king of the Jews. <laughs> this is no crime. This is just the truth. Crucifixion was so horrible that men had to be dragged to the place of execution. But our warrior shepherd was not dragged there. Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that is led to slaughter. John 19, 17-18 tells us they took Jesus to Golgotha and they crucified Him there. They stripped God naked. They laid God down on a cross beam. They took seven-inch spikes. They drove the seven-inch spikes through His wrist. Then they hoist, hoisted God vertically and they drove the spikes through God's feet. As the vertical beam was hoisted and dropped into the hole with a thud, God's shoulders would have been dislocated. You guys know that I think you probably, most of you know that crucifixion is essentially a, a slow death by asphyxiation. Because the chest is put into the inhaled position, and at some point, the victim can no longer push up to exhale, and they die. Crucifixion was the slow annihilation of the man. You guys know the word excruciating, right? It comes from crucifixion. Did you know that? The word excruciating comes from the practice of crucifixion. Isaiah 53.10, But God was pleased to crush him. God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, to render him a guilt offering. Jesus is the guilt offering for His people. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He the Father made Him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So, you got a picture of the bloody cross. The bloody scourging and the bloody cross. That's what your sin looks like to God. We talked about it last week. I know that most of us walk around with some superficial view of our sin. But our sin is infinitely heinous before God. If you ever get confused about how awful your sin is before God, you just go read the, 
the gospel accounts and look at the cross. That's what your sin is to God. It's heinous. It's heinous before God. Isaiah 53, 6. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Amen? That's why we're in this place today. 2,000 years later, redeemed garage, a handful of internationals from all over the world. You could be doing anything today. You're an international. You came here to remember, right? And to honor and to treasure who this God is and what this God has done. Seriously, are you really worried about the why questions? Seriously. You're worried about the why questions? You have to be kidding me, right? You're worried about the why questions. When God has answered the what and the who, isn't that enough? Isn't that enough for you? Doesn't that answer all the important questions? The what and the who? Do you really have to know why? Lord, why did this happen in my life? Do you really have to ask God that? If you're in that place with God and you want to ask God that, that's fine. I long since stopped asking God why. And I bow under His sovereign providence. Knowing that Romans 8.28 is true every day I wake up. Who, who knows what Romans 8.28 says? God will cause all things to work together for good to those who love Him, those called according to His purpose. That's true every day. The question is, do you believe that? Or will you nag God with why questions for the rest of your life? Or will you simply worship God for the what and the who? Beloved, worship God. He's answered the what and the who. What else do you really need? <laughs> As you know, Jesus was alive on the cross from the third hour to the ninth hour. He was, that's 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the cross for six hours. Matthew 27, 45 tells us that darkness fell on the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Symbolic of God's curse which fell on Jesus when our sins were laid upon Him. Matthew 27, 46 reads, And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? John 19.30 tells us that God shouts, It is finished. Matthew 27.50 tells us, And He yielded up His Spirit. He was not killed. He gave up His Spirit. It wasn't ripped from Him. He gave it up. And the veil was rent. The earth shook. The rocks split. And many saints came out of the tomb. Now, I want to stop and just ask you, you know what all of this is about. We've been talking about it. What is all of this about? Beloved, it's about your wages. It's about your wages. You earned this. This was meant for you. You earned this. The wages of sin is death. These are your wages. These are your wages. These are my wages. But He took them for I don't know how 
Resurrection Sunday can go by and you not be so in awe of Jesus Christ that you almost explode. We talked about it last week. How can you not be stunned and staggered that this God has loved you like this? This holy God who simply should have judged you and sent you to hell forever. But there's God on the donkey. <laughs> So, we all know what this is about. Jesus says, John 10, 18, I have the authority to lay my life down. And what else does He have the authority to do? Someone tell me. It's why we're in this garage today. Why? He has the authority to take it up. It's why we're here. He's a risen God. He's an ascended God. He's a reigning God. He's a returning God. There ought to be 10,000 people in here. We understand theologically why there isn't. Men have hard hearts. They're haters of God, according to Romans. And of course, many think we're fools. They think we worship a dead Jewish carpenter, right? They think we're fools. We're simpletons, right? Um, we're idiots. But we know the truth, right? We know the truth. Let's look very quickly at the resurrection. And uh, parenthetically, I'm not going to waste any good time defending or trying to answer the critics or the skeptics who, who try to explain away the resurrection. Uh, I'm not going to waste any time doing that. If you, if you have friends members who have questions about that or if you have a question about that, read this book. Lee Strobel has done a great job assimilating all the historical facts. Way to go, Lee Strobel. I'm so glad you've assimilated all these facts. In fact, he says in here, the, the resurrection of Jesus is the most attested to fact in ancient history. So if you've got issues with the resurrection, or you have friends with issues about the resurrection, read this book. It's free. It's in the bookshelf. The Bible affirms that Jesus appeared no fewer than 11 times over 40 days to 500 people. And I want to spend the last few minutes talking about one of those appearances. We don't fundamentally hold to the resurrection simply because it's in the Bible, simply because it's good doctrine, simply because it's orthodoxy. That's not ultimately why the born-again believer holds to it. Why does the born-again believer hold to it? We talked about this as we talked about the Word of God several weeks ago. Well, let's just look at the example. John 20, real quick, John 20, 11 through 15. John 20, 11 through 15. John 20, 11 through 15. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Verse 13. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. Verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be the gardener. She said to Him, Sir, if you have carried Him away, tell me where you have laid Him, and I will take Him away. What we learn from this text, you know, it's one of the, the astonishing things about 
the gospel account of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, none of his people believed it. He had told them numerous times that this was going to happen. None of them believed it. The disciples were the first skeptics. They did not believe it until they saw him. Why does Mary believe? You, you might want to say, well, she saw him and she talked to him. Is that why she believed? No, the text says she didn't recognize him. Why does she believe? Verse 16, then Jesus said to her, Mary! And nobody could say her name like God. Nobody could say her name like her Creator and her Redeemer. Mary! And then she knew. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. That's how you know. It's how I know. Yay, Lee Strobel. Yay. And scholars like you. Yay. But I know Him. Amen? John 17, 3, I know Him. This is eternal life, that they may know me and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Mary recognizes the voice of her Creator and her Savior. So here we are 2,000 years later, worshiping this awesome God, the incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, reigning, returning, God And again, though most of the world believes we are hopeless simpletons, we know the truth. Amen? If you're a Christian tonight, hallelujah. If you're not, come to Christ. If you're a Christian tonight, hallelujah. <laughs> hallelujah. You will live forever. You will stand in the presence of the one uh, in, who, in whose right hand are pleasures forever. You will love Jesus forever. It will be you and him and him and you. It will be Emmanuel forever. And if you don't know Christ tonight, I invite you to run to the cross. Run to the cross. You, you must know what and you must know who. Forget about the why. You must know what and you must know God says through His prophet Isaiah, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other.